Hi, I'm Madeline, and welcome to Off the Books, a show about books and the people that love them. This episode, the lovely Femi Oriogan Williams met with Navuyo Rosa Schumer to discuss her debut novel, House of Stone, and the books that inspired it. The novel is published by Atlantic in the UK and is forthcoming from W.W. Norton in the US. Femi, tell us a little bit about House of Stone and the books that you discussed. Thanks, Maddie, for that lovely introduction. House of Stone tells the story of Bukosi, who has recently disappeared, and his parents' desperate search to find him. The search for Bukosi is told to us through the eyes of Zamani, the family's lodger, who is eager to involve himself in the tumultuous history of his surrogate family. The novel traces the personal narratives of people who have lived through the fall of colonial Rhodesia and the bloody birth of modern-day Zimbabwe. It is, at times, darkly humorous, highly educational and deeply saddening, bringing to light a struggle for an historical recognition of buried injustices which are ongoing in Zimbabwe today. The book is peppered with textual references, citing, among others, Alice Walker, Francis Fennell, William Golding, Plato, Goethe, and even including the performance of an Aimé Césaire play. But the books we're going to discuss today are The Stone Virgins by fellow Zimbabwean writer Yvonne Vera, the classic thriller The Talented Mr Ripley by Patricia Highsmith, The Tin Drum by Gunter Grass, and we end with another Zimbabwean writer, Dambuzo Marachera, and his groundbreaking House of Hunger. We'll start with Navoya reading from her book House of Stone. Zamani, the lodger, pries into the past of his surrogate father, Abednego, who tells the story of an awkward first date erupting into a political awakening. Gone were his ambitions of finding work as a train driver for the Rhodesia Railways. Gone Abednego, the great colonizer, the Cecil John Rhodes, the Christopher Columbus. He had begun to imbibe his brother's dream, square and bold, black and white, clear lens. But now, Tandy smogged his vision. He spent his days lying on his camp bed in Emma Kandeni hostels, which he shared with his uncle Lumile and cousin Solomon, huffing in reverie, or otherwise prancing about on the narrow cement corridors outside, giving dramatic little damozio and detress sighs in response to his uncle's increasingly exasperated requests that he come into the Sun Hotel to apply for the position of dishwasher, where he could work his way up to the position of a kitchen manager just like he, Uncle Lungile, had, and one day, Cousin Solomon would. He began hounding poor Tandi, for, as far as he was concerned, it was she who hounded him. He was indefatigable in his pursuit, making him reckless with the word of cash his baba had packed him off to Bulawayo with, a rare gesture of love that had made him kneel before the old man's feet. He came each day to Tikitai and stuffed Tandi with chicken pies, showering her with countless bottles of Fanta until she proclaimed an aversion to pastries and fizzy drinks. He chased after her as one pursues conquest. No, he did not want to forage towns, cities and countries. It was the soft hills of her breasts he longed to scale, the mountains of her buttocks he longed to conquer. He longed to tour the umber landscape of her body, to discover crevices and fault lines hitherto unknown even to her, to be the first to clamber between the plateaus of her thighs and slide his flag into a summit, naming it like a god, just like Dagama or Columbus or Livingston or Rhodes, his own wonderland. 
Yes, she said finally to seeing him outside of the stifling confines of Tikitai, where they were chaperoned by the glares of the Indian woman, though I imagine her eyes must have fluttered from weariness rather than delight. How to explain to her that he, too, was fatigued, tired of obsession, drained by mania, enamored of revolt. Never mind that her surrender was without enthusiasm. A victory still demanded a victory dance, so that later, alone in the communal bathroom of the hostel, he would bend his bony legs, click his fingers, and bop, bop, bop to the floor. There is a soccer field down the road, just around the corner from here on 2nd Avenue. Meet me there tomorrow during your lunch break. She checked that there weren't any customers lurking in the aisles before she replied, Listen, listen, I'm not one of your Makaya girls, okay? Your rural girls you just see and profess love to and then take into the bush to fuck, okay? She said fuck in English. He gaped at her. Such a vulgar woman. Were hers really the rangers he wanted to colonize? You Makaya boys need to learn some manners, she continued. I'm not some piece of meat that you just happen upon and just prod prod to your liking. I'm an Angela Davis and you'll respect my feminality, okay? He wanted to ask, who is Angela Davis? Is she your mother? Is your mother Angela Davis? Why does she have a white person's name? She looked really pissed off, so he just nodded. She regarded him out of the corners of her eyes. You ask a cultured girl out for lunch and afterwards a play. Hmm... He pretended to be considering this, though his heart was in his throat. He had no idea where to take her, what she expected out of lunch and play. What sort of play was this? Did she mean playing under the covers? Was she propositioning him? I can get us some nice food from the Sun Hotel, he said finally. And afterwards we can play. Her eyes lit up. The Sun Hotel. Yes, that's actually a brilliant idea. No, 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 no. I didn't mean take you there. I mean, you know, no muntus are allowed there, right? What I meant was that my uncle, I mean, I could get us some food from the kitchens and then we could go somewhere nice, like maybe the centenary park and sit under the trees with a blanket. Don't be ridiculous, she said. That sort of thing is for people who have nowhere proper to go and then they end up trying to grope one another behind the bushes. Meet me outside Tikitai on Saturday after my shift, 2 p.m. sharp and don't keep a girl waiting. The days leading up to Saturday were long and unnecessarily hot and sticky. He sweated a lot. Cousin Solomon stole a tin of homemade relaxer from Uncle Lungli's room that smelled strongly of raw eggs. Abednego watched tentatively through a piece of broken mirror as Solomon smeared it all over his kinky hair. Are you sure it won't fry my scalp or bend my hair or anything? Promise always, cousin. I'm just gonna let it sit for a few minutes and then wash it off and then trust me, when your girl sees you, she won't be able to take her eyes off you. His scalp itched after Solomon washed off the mixture and it began to tingle when his cousin greased his hair with sticky gel and then combed it back so it would lie flat. But the relaxer hadn't set properly, so his hair rose in a curvy bump, sweeping up and away from his face. Are you sure I look okay, cousin? He said, tilting his head from side to side, appraising the shiny dew. Isn't my hair supposed to lie flat? I mean, what is this bump? I know, cousin. This is the pompadour conch. You look like a black Elvis Presley. Hey, who is this Elvis Presley and why must I look like him? Ah, never mind. You look like an American rocking and rolling star. That is all. We've washed the rural off you, cousin. You've become the kind of men city girls love. Your girl's eyes are going to drop when she sees you. 
Saturday arrived, and my surrogate father found himself standing outside Tikitai at the appointed hour, 2 p.m. sharp, an arm wrapped around the parking meter, the other cocked on his hip, the pompadour conch flourishing up and away from his face. Indeed, at first, when Tandi emerged, dressed in a long black floral sundress and in the company of not one, but two young men, one of them white, she almost didn't recognize him. She stood there appraising him, and then, just as a smile began to spread across his face, she threw back her head and laughed. It turned out he didn't look like a rocking and rolling star, and, what was worse, the date was between him and Tandy and the two young men. Frankie, whose face ripened under his glare, and Velapi, who, sniggering, kept calling him Mary Andrew. Abednego wanted to grab Tandy as they piled into Frankie's sky-blue Ford angrily and shout, What kind of date is this? Eh? Who are these people? Is it because I don't have a car? But he just got in, Tandy settling in the front seat with Frankie, leaving him to squash up against Velapi in the back. In this way, they drove to the Sun Hotel, my surrogate father scowling ineffectually. When they pulled up in front of the grand entrance doors, out they bounded, he trailing behind, up the steps and across the lobby, ignoring the hushed whispers of the white guests as they hastened into the hotel restaurant, where Frankie, who kept clasping and unclasping his hands, cleared his throat and announced to the brunette hostess that they had a reservation. The hostess paused, looked from Frankie to Tandy to Mvelapi. Her eyes resolved into tiny slits when they settled on my surrogate father and back again. I'm sorry, sir, but I, uh, we don't allow natives in this establishment. Abednego looked about him sheepishly. Bolding and permed heads had risen from the restaurant bars to stare at them, but the other three seemed neither surprised nor flustered. Why, said Tandy, why are you sorry? What exactly are you sorry for? The hostess stumbled back as though she'd been slapped. If you don't leave, I'm afraid I'll have to call security. As though triggered, Tandy, Frankie, and Velapi strode past the hostess into the restaurant and began maneuvering from table to table, grabbing food from the guests' plates. The diners began to yell and shriek, some attempting to shimmy off their chairs, while others flung napkins at the disruptors. Citizens against the color bar, the three yelled, before stuffing beef stroganoff and peach melba, Salisbury steak and eggs benedict, chicken marengo and wadolf salad into their mouths. Say yes to black. Citizens against the color bar, say yes to black. Outside, sirens could be heard in the distance. Upon hearing the wee wee, the three citizens against the color bar made a dash for the exit. Tandy shoved Abednego, who had been standing by the restaurant entrance all along, and tugged at his sleeve. Run! He raised his head just then and glimpsed, peeping through the double doors at the other end of the restaurant, the mortified face of his uncle Lunile and his astonished cousin Solomon next to him. He flinched, turned, and fled. Were you reading a lot whilst you were writing, writing a um, uh, yeah, um, some of these texts, um, Walker, um, Aime, Suze, I, I read during the writing of the novel, right? Since 2011 up to now. Some I'd read before Fanon, I discovered in my early, early 20s. William Golding, read in my teens. Plato um, and Goethe, I actually read them from the Tindrum. So yeah, it's very interesting how what you read does influence what you tend to write. And you start making these very interesting connections between texts or ideas with your own work. And you've chosen a few extracts to read for us today. I thought to choose the less obvious, maybe influences, that are not explicitly referenced. And I thought that would be fun. 
So the first, the first one is the Stone Virgins by Yvonne Vera. Yvonne Vera. Um, could you just maybe tell us a bit about what drew you to this novel? Well, first of all, Yvonne Vera is one of the Zimbabwean greats, Femi. So um, she's one of our iconic writers. Um, she wrote five books in her lifetime. She died in 2004, aged 40, of an HIV-related illness, which was very tragic. But The Stone Virgins was her very last novel, right, 2002. And um, it looks at the um, Liberation War and the period right after, which is the genocide. And it um, tells the story of two sisters, Nungleba and Tenjiwe, and as they go through the Liberation War and then what happens to them in, during the genocide, which is very tragic. Now, um, Yvonne is very known for po poetry, poetic prose. Her writing borders on this very subtle narrative. But I think The Stone Virgins of all her books, or at least the books of hers I've read, is the most narrative sort of it's got a straight narrative and then it's got that poetry, poetic prose. So what I really loved besides her writing, which is very dense, at some point um, you read these passages, which may not make sense if you're trying to look conventionally, but if you just let yourself, so it's one of those books I think you just have to trust it. If you let yourself read, you can actually feel the rhythms and there's a pleasure. Um, so I love sentences. If you've noticed from how I love wordplay. So at this point with the book I'm reading and it's, even if it's these gruesome things, she lends a very disturbing, if not beautiful sort of sense of beauty right, to things. Death becomes both horrific and beautiful. Um, and she also blends landscape, right? Kezi, a village in the novel, which also features in my novel, that's where Mama Agnes in House of Stone comes from, is the center of this novel, right? Um, and she, you know, the, the, the sun, the landscape, the leaves, the, the flora becomes part of, like, personified in the novel. It's very uh, spiritual. I found it a very spiritual experience, and I loved it for that. Now we're going to hear a passage from Yvonne Vera's The Stone Virgins. Those who witnessed the goings-on at Tandavantu on this night said Mashatini howled like a helpless animal. When the sound died, his skin was already perforated like lace. Long before they burned the store down, he had died. What followed the series of gunshots, the torture, was a cacophony of sound which lit the night with its explosion. The order of charred flesh filled the air and has stayed in the minds of the kids' villagers forever. On this night, when Tandavantu was burnt down, babies being weaned had to be kept longer on the breast so that their mothers could survive what had happened, aided by the warm touch of the sightless minds of their offspring. Tandavantu's store was raised, bombed to pieces, and silenced. If there are bodies under the rubble, nobody dares to approach the site, to remove each stone and broken brick and count the bones one by one to identify which is which, which the vertebrae that make command stand. Some of the men who are missing in the village are said to have certainly died there. The others, it is said, walked all the way from Kezi to Bulawayo on that same night, having managed to escape, carrying with them the memory of a burning body and an impeccable flame, understanding more than anyone else that Kezi was to endure a time both frightful and unrefined, that whatever else was to happen would be devastating and final. Those who had already witnessed the future found it foolhardy to stay. They were in flight from a truth they had already encountered. The team of soldiers who had congregated on Tandavantu's door had demonstrated that anything that had happened so far had not been random or unplanned. Atrocious, yes, but purposeful. They committed evil as though it were a legitimate pursuit, a ritual for their own convictions. Each move meant to shock, 
to cure the naive mind. When is this book set? So it's set between the 1970s right through the 80s up to 86. From the 70s up to 1980 there was the war for liberation right and this beautiful depictions in the stone virgins where the soldiers come back from the war and Yvonne Vera zones in particularly on the women so you have these women soldiers who've come back and they're very heroic and the men are both entranced by fearful of them right um, and then um, from 1982 up to 1986, we had um, a period known as Kukura Hundi, which in Shona means the early rain, which washes away the chaff before the spring rains. Um, and it's known as a massacre. It's also known as a genocide, right? Um, and the novel zones in on that period. And that's where we get, uh, it's a sense of mourning, but the language is so beautiful in the novel um, where we learn what happens to two sisters, Nonleba and Tenjiwe. And then there's this very horrific part in the novel where Vera actually embodies um, one of the perpetrators' um, psyche, a man called Sibaso. It's, it's a very bravely done. She makes his voice a lot. So the passage I've read from is right after... Um, the genocide in Kezi, where a man called Mashatini, who runs the store, Tandavantu store, has just been killed by the soldiers. The 5th Brigade, the 5th Brigade, who carried out the genocide. I was very keen, of course, to know what my predecessor and the great writer Vera had done, right, and how she sort of did it. Um, especially because in our culture, it's, the idea of looking is very, seems to be very hard. We have a bloody past, but it's always... Almost seems like a taboo to look. So I, I did a lot of reading, including the Catholic Commission of Inquiry, right? The Catholic Commission held an inquiry into the massacres and disturbances, as they euphemistically called them, that occurred. And they held this in the 90s, right? In the early to mid-90s, right? And this was about five, six years after the genocide had ended. And there are all, you know, there are can be very brutal testimonies there from the victims when they were sharing what happened. And from that, actually, characters like Black Jesus, that's when I became actually fascinated with the character Black Jesus, who's fictionalized in the novel. Um, yes, you can think of Black Jesus as Jesus' alter ego. And not, you know, I, um, as, as I said to you, I, you know, I dislike the use of black and blackness as negative because of the historical connotations. But Black Jesus is a name that a character, you know, um, that several people have used in Zimbabwe. And it's meant to be a liberation sort of name, liberator, right? To, to embody Jesus and blackness. And these two are supposed to come together and fuse. Um, so it comes to symbolize a lot in the novel. So I, I, I discovered Black Jesus when I was um, researching the Catholic Commission inquiries. I also watched documentaries. Um, if you go on YouTube and you just put Kurahundi, there's several documentaries, some by um, white British journalists in the 80s who tried to come and interview Mugabe and to find out what was happening. Um, then there was one recent one, a beautiful one by this um, gentleman called Zenzel. I think it's the first documentary to be done by a black Ndevele Zimbabwe, and that's very important, right? It was done recently, I think about seven years ago, and he also interviews victims and um, very some of the dissidents. Um, and so the documents are very instructive as in they give a landscape view of what was happening there. You know, what was Mugabe thinking? What was Britain's involvement? And then we get testimonies from the victims. So that was my useful sort of research. And then, of course, very curious because I realized my own family must have lived through this time. My own mother lived through this time. So for the first time, I was really looking at her like this woman, I wonder. And so I tried to ask her, 
you know, where were you during the genocide? And I think I took her off guard because I was very casual about it and she became very upset. Remember, she, 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 you know, she frowned, she wouldn't look at me, she, she you know, and I kept pressing because she kept saying, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, and she wouldn't want to talk about it. Then she snapped. Um, it was my sort of first, you know, reckoning with my mother, someone other than the woman I know, someone with layers and complexity. And so, and I've also spoke to other relatives. I spoke to an uncle of mine who's very successful now, right? He's not your quintessential idea of a victim. When we think of genocides and war in Africa, we have very stereotypical ideas of victims. So someone who has moved on with his life on the outside. But when I spoke to him, he also became very upset, you know? And um, at that moment, that's when you realize this is something that's still there, this festering. Um, and it sort of informed my view in the novel. You, when we spoke before, you also talked about your granddad as well, like wanting to... Yeah, so recently after she listened to BBC Woman's Hour, and I was really a bit worried, my mother was quite, you know, she was happy. She said she's proud of me, and she, she started to open up and tell me some of the stories. She hasn't opened up about everything. But what she really spoke to me about was my grandfather. So my grandfather, her father, was uh, very active in the Liberation War, and he... You know, it helped the guerrillas, it helped move things around. He lived in Lupane, which is in the novel, which is a Benego's home, right? Um, home village. And so he was tortured during Smith's reign by some CIO agents who worked for Smith, right? These were black CIO agents, and they worked for the government, for Ian Smith's government at the time. Then in 1980, the same agents were working for Mugabe. And um, she told me that my grandfather says one day one of the agents who tortured him came to his house and told him, you have to leave now, right? This is in Rubane, the village. Like, you're on a list, right? You're on a Kukurahundi list, and they're coming. You and your family need to leave now. And so she says my grandfather initially was very angry, right, because it's someone who tortured you. But um, he decided in the middle of the night to wake up and pack, and then he told them, right? She, she My mother's the firstborn, to push the car, like a truck, and you know, down the hill so that they don't make a noise, and then that's how they managed to escape. And then he heard that um, the following day, um, they came looking for him and they um, rounded up some people in the village and um, all sorts of horrible things happened. It must have been um, a very emotional experience dig like digging through it. and like... Yeah, it was um, for me and especially as my mom was saying, she says at the time, especially right after, it was very dangerous to talk about it. That's why there's been silence has become a way to... I guess, deal with it, not deal with it, because she says people would disappear, so especially in the village. So people would, you know, say something, the next day, the person's gone. And it's interesting, the Catholic Commission readings also corroborate that. Like when um, the Catholic Commission went to try and question villagers, there was a time when CIO agents, our government agents, were there, and then no one wanted to talk to them. We moved on to talking about The Talented Mr. Ripley, a novel by Patricia Highsmith. Navuya gave me a bit of context about the passage that she'd chosen. Tom, Tom Ripley, who's a charming young man, con man, um, has travelled to Rome, right? And his mission is to get Dickie, Mr. Greenleaf's son. Mr. Greenleaf thinks Tom and Dickie are close friends, um, to return home. So he's in Rome and he's fallen in love with Dickie, right? As in his brotherly love, although Margie's, um suspects that uh, they have something going on. Marge suspects that Tom is gay and has a thing for Dickie. And it's never clear in the novel whether that's the case or not. But Tom is enamored and wants Dickie's life. And Tom is jealous of Dickie's relationship with Marge. Um, so in the scene, Tom is in Dickie's room and is, begins to impersonate Dickie. He jerked Dickie's closet door open and looked in. 
there was a freshly pressed, new-looking grey flannel suit that he had never seen Dickie wearing. Tom took it out. He took off his knee-length shorts and put on the grey flannel trousers. He put on a pair of Dickie's shoes. Then he opened the bottom drawer of the chest and took out a clean blue and white striped shirt. He chose a dark blue silk tie and knotted it carefully. The suit fitted him. He reparted his hair and put the part a little more to one side, the way Dickie wore his. Marge, you must understand that I don't love you, Tom said into the mirror in Dickie's voice, with Dickie's higher pitch on the emphasized words, with the little growl in his throat at the end of the phrase that could be pleasant or unpleasant, intimate or cool, according to Dickie's mood. Marge, stop it, Tom turned suddenly and made a grab in the air as if he was seizing Marge's throat. He shook her, twisted her, while she sank lower and lower, until at last he left her limp on the floor. He was panting. He wiped his forehead the way Dickie did, reached for a handkerchief, and, not finding any, got one from Dickie's top drawer, then resumed in front of the mirror. Even his parted lips looked like Dickie's lips when he was out of breath from swimming, drawn down a little from his lower teeth. You know why I had to do that, he said breathlessly, addressing Marge, though he watched himself in the mirror. You were interfering between Tom and me. No, not that, but there is a bond between us. When did you read this book? Or how did you... I read this book uh, during the writing of House of Stone, actually. Um, it was uh, recommended to me by my um, UK editor, James. Um, and then I'm like, oh, some money is doing weird things. Yeah, so I could see some similarities. And so I actually read now Tom as a writer. So I figured out what is Patricia doing and how is she doing it? Uh, because when I finished reading it, I read it like in a day. I picked it up. I couldn't put it down. Then at some point, I'm like, I am rooting for a psychopath. And I really like him. And I want him to win. What is going on? <laughs> you know, and the cops are like, get away. You know, I was like, Tom, you know, Tom, you need to get away. I'm like, yeah. You said that um, uh, this passage re like resonated with Zumani or uh, it, Mr. Ripley bears um, similarities mm. to Zumani in some way. Yeah, you know, what's, so what's creepy when I'm reading this, this passage, it's, it reminds me of how Zamani tries to impersonate or take over Bukosi's life. Right? Can, you, can you just explain who Zamani is? Just uh, okay. yeah, So Zamani is the narrator, the storyteller in the novel. Um, he's a young man, age 24, very ambiguous, mysterious. And um, when we open the novel, we know that he is trying to ingratiate himself to the Mlambos, a family that he's living with. He's a lodger, and he is renting a room from this family, and he becomes enamored of them. And he, he thinks they're the perfect family, mother, father, and son. And so, of course, the son is missing. Right? He's gone missing at a political rally uh, where Zamani was present. And so Zamani um, is um, comforting the family, as it were, and he's trying to help the family find Bukosi, or so it seems. And as, you know, as time goes on, he seems to, you know, Get, get a gain of fatherly bond with Abednego, or so he thinks, and um, he starts prying this family for their histories, right? He's someone who's very curious and very interested in the past, and I think that's what makes him a very fascinating character for this novel. He really likes to know about people's lives and stories, um, and as we read on, it's you know, not as old as it seems. It's not such an innocent sort of knowing or desire to know. Um, so... Yeah, so this, this scene for me was very interesting because uh, Tom here is, you know, trying to impersonate Dickie. It's a very lovely illustration of how Tom, you know, Tom 
is enamored of Dickie so much that he wants to be Dickie and so much so that he wants to get everyone else away from Dickie. Uh, Marge, right, who's close to Dickie. And Tom sees uh, Marge as a threat. So Zamani, I think similarly, Zamani wants to become Bukosi in a way. Um, and you see he starts doing these really creepy things as the novel goes on. I will not spoil it for, for you. But, um, and it's very interesting in the sense that whereas Tom here, his focus is Dickie, Zamani's focus is Bukosi's parents. Right. Um, he wants to displace, displace Bukosi to the point where um, he's really interested in becoming the son and in gaining the parents' affection, right? Whereas Tom hunkers for Dickie's affection. So I found that sort of um, the ability to shape-shift, right? And to impersonate, right? Or to act, to try and act as someone else. Um, to take on various personas, personality, reinvention, right? That's what Tom is all about. That's actually what Zaman is all about, right? Zaman's aims to become a new man, right? Rebirth, almost very biblical, you know, in its sort of connotations. Um, so that, that's, I love those two similarities. Yeah, if I can read the first line of, the, the, of House of Stone, I am a man on a mission, a vacation, call it to remake the past, and a wish to fashion all that has been into being and becoming. And it's something about this drive that, makes him such a wonderful lens to view the story through. Um, did you have fun writing with Zamani? Oh, definitely. Um, maybe too much fun. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed Zamani because of the range that he was able to give the story. Right? I remember when we were talking, like, yeah, he fancies himself a good storyteller, right? He thinks he's smart, um, which he is, and he, he's trying to outfox people. Um, he's also very serious, right? It seems to be a very life and death project for him. You can feel that sense of urgency, desperation, um, that colossal proportions that it has for him. And I think that's how history comes to have a, a colossal proportions for the reader as well, right? Um, but I also love, you know, he, Zaman is also someone who, you know, he's human and he's very playful and he makes things up as he goes along. Um, and I think that's sort of also fun to go along with, right? Uh, the imagination to be so invested in something because um, there are parts where you know the family Abednego and Mama Agnes are not telling him things right that he wants to know or they're faltering or they're, they're busy with other things in life and he needs the story to go on so he keeps imagining right he becomes so invested in Abednego's life he finds Tandy right who Abednego falls in love with very fascinating right to the point that he begins to dream about her and um, so it's interesting. So when you're saying that, for example, the genocide is the center of this novel, I was really thinking about it, oh, that it's, it's the center precisely because it's the center of Zamani's life, right? That's where the heat, in terms of history, right? Because this novel's sort of sp spoiling, right? We have history right from Rhodesia, right? Before we gained our independence and we have these various characters. Um, we have Abednego's surrogate father, his own stepfather, who was a, a soldier, right? The Rhodesian. African rifles, which we never talk about in Zimbabwe, right? Who, who fought in Smith's army, right? So you have, but it's when we actually get to the genocide, right? Where things become very hot in the novel, very hot because they're very hot for Zamani, right? It's where we've pressed a wound in him as a character and he reacts to it. Your book spans the collapse of the colonial state and, yes. and Zimbabwe growing out of that. And I wondered if you could talk about how these personal narratives within the book, characters such as Abednego mm -hmm. and um, Mama Agnes, they s span that gap and mm -hmm. what that transition did to them and maybe to people who um, they, they mirror and react mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know, Femi, it's interesting because so we, the genocide, right, it's a lesser known part of our history, um, but we're yet to actually even unpack our liberation war. There's just so much 
there. Um, so we have that one monolithic narrative by the state. You know, we, have a, we had a very sort of cliche autocratic government, nothing special. You know, monolithic narrative, you know, you tell you one version, they're heroes, they're villains. Um, and um, so House of Stone really is a novel that's steeped in the telling of its time now. And it's also in conversation with other Zimbabwe novels. So we, we had war literature. It's not available in Zimbabwe. Again, it's policies of our government, right? Um, so I found these novels, um, um, the books like um, The Unbeliever's Journey by Standing Yafuguza. It's a war novel, um, just one example. I found them in the University of Iowa library. You cannot find them back home. So that was quite fascinating, but a tragedy. The books in Sean and Debele in the universe, you know, you find them in libraries abroad and we don't have it at home. So we have this whole sense of literature. So the way I carved or thought about the liberation struggle was about the lesser known stories, right? Because we do know the stories about the heroes and villains and that's how, you know, it's become a very um, overbearing narrative. So we don't talk about other things that happened and people don't seem to want to talk about it. It becomes, you know, this shame. Even Abednego, when you read, he sort of manufactures, you know, he, he remembers things that, you know, probably not his own memories that may not be his own memories. And Zamani tries to pry the truth out of it. So for instance, Zamani's um, stepfather, right, um, Baba, was Rhodesia, who fought in the Rhodesian African Rifles, right? And he, he owns that, right? And he's fighting for country, right? For self and country, for Christ, for Christ and country. It's a very sort of normal thing for a soldier to do. He's a, you know, he's a black man and development man. He's fighting for Ian Smith. Um, so that's sort of, what was that like? And what were the sort of understandings or self-motivations behind that? And we sort of go through that with Baba, right? Um, then we have Farmer Thornton, right? Another mysterious figure in the novel. I will not spoil it for the reader who um, has started a blog, Rhodesians Never Die, this is in the present. And we have his own understanding or lack of understanding as a former Rhodesian, right? Who's sort of trying to excavate his past as a way of trying to deal with what's going on in Zimbabwe, right? This is in the 2000s when the farmers were thrown off their farms. Um, the, the farm invasions. The farm invasions, right, which happened in the year 2000, which we called the Third Chimuringa, right? The Third Liberation War. Because the war, the liberation war land was at the center, right? When the colonial um, explorers came, they settled, they displaced, right, Africans off their land. So part of the premise of the liberation war was we want to reclaim the land, right? And that's something that has not been resolved, that had not been resolved come the year 2000. But that's another long story. So basically, Farmer Thornton is dealing with all of these things. So he's also, you know, working through his own memories, right, of Rhodesia, of home, of what that means, of being in a new Zimbabwe. And we have Zacchaeus, right, Abednego's brother, <laughs> the intellectual who goes to Oxford University and all sorts of things happen to him, you know, he, um, he ends up in America and he has his own sort of intellectual reckoning with Zimbabwe and Africa and um, the black man, the slave. Um, so these are just examples of different characters. We have Tandy, of course, one of my favorite characters, very feisty, young, bourgeois, you know, liberation struggle woman. We have Spear the Blood, right? who's a guerrilla, right, known as a terrorist. So the guerrillas were called terrorists during the Rhodesia War. So all these are like colorful characters who pepper the first part of the novel, you know, and it's, it was for me to t various stories, right? It's that um, multitude of a chorus, right? Um, for me, it was a way of just trying to, it was fascinating for me reading about some of these stories when I was researching the novel and these characters just sort of sprang to life. I'm like, no, I have to have, I have to have you in this book. I have to have you in this book. <laughs> so they just came off straight off the history page? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I read history. There's no way I could have just made them. I was reading and I was really fascinated. So for example, the ex-Rhodesians, right? Because right now, you know, you can't really talk about Rhodesia that way. 
but they you know what the internet has done we find blogs you find facebook pages so that's where i sort of got the testimonies um and you know colonization was very horrible right it was really terrible so you know imagine you live every day of your life as a non-human basically right um but these memories like on the on facebook and on the blogs were they felt to me they were human memories. For the first time, I, because we grew up knowing that Rhodesia was a terrible place. You understand that. But you saw these people pining after, you know, oh, you know, the bakery used to be there. This used to be there. So there's also that other side that I had never, you know, sort of contemplated, right, about Rhodesians as human beings who went through the trauma for war and found their home destroyed and then did not know how to deal with it. Right? And that's something that also hasn't been dealt with in Zimbabwe. We've not had those conversations. So... What they've had to do is to hide and maybe talk in secret and come and smile in public. And it's not clear, you know, how they relate. They feel Zimbabwean, but they also feel Rhodesian. There's the sort of the British heritage, right? At some point, um, white Zimbabweans had dual citizenship. So there's the privilege of that. But they, they were also, you know, during the farm invasions, white Zimbabweans were very clear to sort of distance themselves from Britain. Like, were Zimbabweans, were not British. Very confusing, sort of. So I was, I was really, I found that fascinating. The next passage is from The Tin Drum by Gunter Grass. Faith, hope, love. Oscar read those three little words and played with them like a juggler with bottles. Faith healer, hope chest, love bird, old faithful, hope diamond, lover's leap, with love as always, hope to see you again, faithfully yours. An entire gullible nation believed faithfully in Santa Claus, but Santa Claus was really the gas man. In faith, I believe it smelled of walnuts and almonds, but it smelled of gas. Soon it will be what's called the first advent, and the first and second through fourth advent will be turned on like a gas cock, so that it smells believably of walnuts and almonds, so that all those nutcrackers can take comfort in belief. He's coming, he's coming, and who came? The Christ, the Christ child, the saviour, or was it the heavenly gasman with the gas meter under his arm, ticking away? And he said, I am the saviour of this world. Without me, you can't cook. And he was open to reason. He offered special rates, turned on the freshly polished gas cocks and let the Holy Spirit pour forth so that the dove could be cooked. And gave out walnuts and almonds in the shell, which were promptly cracked, and they too poured forth spirit and gas, so that the gullible were easily gulled, saw all the gasmen in the increasingly thick and bluish air outside the department stores as Santa Clauses and Christ children in all sizes and prices. And so they believed in the only true and saving gas company, which symbolized fate with its rising and falling gas meters, and staged an advent season at standard prices, one many, in fact, believed would bring them the Christmas they expected, but only those for whom the store of walnuts and almonds was insufficient survived the holidays, though all had believed there was plenty for everyone. So the Tin Drum is, oh, one of my favorite novels. Um, I read this whilst writing House of Stone, but it's like um, two years into House of Stone. And I, I really was fascinated by what Grass did with the Holocaust, right? So I felt what Grass did with German history, I want to try and do with Zimbabwean history. So we have Oscar, who is a dwarf, and when we, the novel opens, he's in a um, lunatic asylum, and he's writing his chronicles, his life history. Um, and um, we, we learn, as the novel goes on, that this is no ordinary tale. Oscar tells us that he stopped growing at the age of three. He, um, 
he, he didn't grow physically, but he grew mentally. So he's like an adult in a child's body. And it's, it opens up the book to all sorts of craziness because he's got a child's amoralness, a child's curiosity, a child's brutal honesty, but the mentality of an adult. Um, so we learn about Oscar's family, right? He has, also has two fathers. We're not clear who the, which, who, which father is which, whom he has a love-hate relationship with and tries to kill in the novel. Um, but it's a very picaresque novel. It's very episodic, right? So it's, that's one of the things that this book, it's, 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 it doesn't have a clear through line. Um, but the war is very distant, right, for Oscar. He lives in Poland, right, Danzig, which was a Polish city. And it's only as the war gets closer that we get a sense of um, the effect, I guess, of Holocaust and Hitler. But what's very interesting about this novel, um, it's, it's not full-on bloody. It's bloody, it's grotesque, it's disgusting. It's, and it discussed as a uh, sort of manufactured, willfully manufactured element of the novel. And then it normalizes, so everything's normal. So little things um, like ants scurrying on the table and someone being killed are given the same level of attention in the novel, which is very fascinating. So, um, so I was very fascinated by that. And when sort of I read an interview with Grass said um, he was, his aim here was to try and sort of show the German people their own face, so complicitness, right? Um, how this, these things were going on when normal life was going on, right? It was a normal thing. It wasn't something that was a grotesque evil that was only recognized after the fact, but at the time it felt normal, right? People were going about their lives and this was happening. So um, in this chapter, um, Oscar's telling the story of Merlin, who was an SS soldier, right? And then he leaps into First Corinthians. And this is emblematic of Grass, who was very playful with his words. And wordplay is something that you do a lot as well in in the way you write and I just wanted to ask you about um, what it means to be playful as mm -hmm. a writer. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I think wordplay or the ability to be playful, especially when you're dealing with what's considered, I guess it, it's difficult material, subject material, gives it range, right? Um, I think I was really afraid of trapping my characters in the horror of the genocide, right? To trap them is they become fetishized, becomes a fetish of suffering. Um, something which can be common in African writing. So it's, it's, I, I wanted to do justice to that experience without um, narrowing or folding characters' entire lives into that one experience, right? And so humor, playfulness, or range with words is able to give those different registers, right? And it also, for me, explains our own existence, right? Um, when I moved to the U.S. in 2013, Americans would get horrified, like, you know, we lived through food shortages, you know, and few of shortages and how horrible it was. And my memory of it was, yeah, it was horrible. It was also funny, as in fun. We fell in love, we chattered, we joked. There were arguments, there were fights, you know, family fights, family arguments, people coming life, right? And so I really wanted to capture that range that um, amidst all of this, life happens. Life happens before, life happens after. People are trying to live life, right? Um, and also, I mean, I mean, it's also fun. It's also really was also a way to be able to write this novel. Um, I feel it would have been unbearable to to sort of um, have a deadpan voice for sort of some of the horrors. And um, I think it also gives a money character, right? As someone who's humorous and thinks it's funny and is, you know, very diabolical, <laughs> um, it's words also become a way of giving pleasure. 
to the spirit of the soul. Yeah. That scene also it's steeped in symbolism around Christmas and um, the gas man and um, uh, Christmas also has a place in your novel as well, which mm -hmm. I won't go into too much depth. Mm -hmm. But it's um, I found that scene. In, it, it's just an incredible read it because <laughs> so, it's an incredibly yeah. moving scene. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to maybe just ask you about Christmas and, and if, if there's a, a crossover between this passage yes. and that. Yeah, I mean, so one thing is very interesting. So uh, reading Grass as a book, you, so I was reading and I had to keep Googling stuff. And there's also a glossary list at the back. And it's because this book, right, is written in German and was translated. So you can imagine to that society, sort of puns and wordplay. And here his writing was also very innovative in German as well, right? In the language. He was innovating the German language. Um, things like Santa Claus and the Gas Man um, was understood. I was reading the Germans understood what I was talking about, which was Hitler. Hitler's Santa Claus with the Gas Man, right? He's mistaken as the savior and he's the Gas Man gassing people in the concentration camps. Meanwhile, it's Christmas and everyone's celebrating. So that's sort of the wordplay is really... Um, so... Um, and I'm thinking that in my novel, you can think of Christmas as rebirth, really. And, you know, there's a lot of religion and biblical references in the novel throughout, wordplay. So you can think of Zamani as a character who associates Christmas with having succeeded in coming forth, right? Having died and come again, come anew, right, with new tidings. And that's sort of his sort of view. As for, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, what sort of rebirth and what are these tidings, right? And what do they mean for the other characters in the novel? But he is obsessed, right, with fathers as well, even priests. Um, sort of obsessed with the idea of the sublime, right? Yeah, the church doesn't get a very... Um, not, you're not gentle with them. <laughs> well, you know, the Catholic Church especially is a very... It's been very political in our history. It's, it's, it's a very fascinating. It's, it's spiritual, but very political. And I believe God must be, you know, God must be very interested in politics, must be like a whole political, a couple of political parties up there in heaven doing their bidding. Anyway, because um, <laughs> the church loves politics. But yeah, I think also Christmas or religion becomes a, th a way to question things in the novel. You know, we're a very religious country. Our own Mugabe was Catholic. You know, there's been a rise of Pentecostalism as the answer to elements. So I think as a sort of self-reflexive, secular text, it was, would be, have been difficult not to sort of look at the Zimbabwean state, right, without the role of what religion or spiritualism, right, has played, right? Because it did play a role in all the various parts of our history from the liberation to the genocide to what's going on now. The church has always been deeply invested or embroiled in all of these elements. Yeah. Um, and another thing about sort of Christmas or um, is, is its place as a domestic um, familial activity and um, I think it's something that really uh, spoke to me in the book I suppose was a search for home or, or like a house and um, what what the difference between a house and a home oh. is maybe and um, maybe you could just explain what house of stone means oh, lovely that's a lovely connection there I hadn't thought of it that way house of stone um, translates into the country name Zimbabwe Zimate Zimbabwe means house stone and it was named from Great Zimbabwe which are these beautiful stone ruins um, that were built, they were piled, just stone, no concrete in between and this magnificent structure which when the settlers came believed it must have been the Portuguese you know because simple Africans could never have done this so uh, when Zimbabwe gains its independence it reclaimed that name Zimbabwe house of stone 
So it's very interesting, the stone birds, which are on the novel's cover, right? The, the stone birds were used right from the colonial time. So they have a very long history. So they were found on Great Zimbabwe, the soapstone birds, which is a Zimbabwe bird. They were used on, as the Rhodesian coat of arms and the Rhodesian coins. They were adopted in Zimbabwe as well. So that's also a very interesting idea of free birth, right? It's the same symbol, but it's come to mean different things. Um, and Zamania, I guess, is trying to find a home in the House of Stone, right? Or turn a home out of the House of Stone. Um, and I, before, when we spoke before, uh, your last, the last book that you chose was The House of Hunger, and I, I was like, are they, are they linked? Is there a House of Stone, House of Hunger, you're like, no. <laughs> but, um, The House of Hunger, um, is a book by Dambuzo Madachera, and that's also, I, could you maybe talk, talk about what The House of Hunger in his, in his book represents? So, oh, Madachera, very controversial, colourful character, again, another Zimbabwean great, though during his lifetime, unlike Vera, who enjoyed, um, widespread acclaim locally and even internationally, widespread acclaim and respect for her work, Marichero is quite divided and very controversial. So House of Hunger in his novel actually looks at the Liberation War, because the book was published in 1979. So um, it looks at that period right before liberation. Um, it's an autobiographical novel. And in it, there's a character, a named narrator. It starts, I packed, I got my things and left, right? Very sort of iconic starting line. Um, and it's, it's all about leaving and running away and starting afresh. And it's not told in chronological order. Again, it's very imagistic, right? But there's actually a story. It's, 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 it's the narrator's life story, which is closely tied to Marichur's own life story. It's about the violence, right? The violence, decadence, the wishes. Because the narrator keeps searching for black heroes in the novel. Um, self, searching for the self. Um, that very intense period where there were traitors, you know, traitors and non-traitors and what that means. Um, and sort of that sort of memory. Um, and so he, he talks about the gut rot, right? There was gut rot um, in our minds, you know, you know, it's the house of hunger becomes something that's inside the individual, right? And um, for me, it's a book where Marich is trying to deal with what colonization did or meant, right? For the black subject, very intense and psychological way. Um, yeah, and he, I think he's usually speaking about himself, really, there, in that novel. Yeah, it's, mm. it's semi-autopathic. Well, yeah, 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 I mean, his own life, he grew up in Rusape. So, so uh, always, it's always believed House of Hunger set in Harare. It's set in Rusape, where he grew up, which is several kilometers outside of Harare. And his own father, his own father was killed by a car, but in the novel, he's killed by a train, same way. Um, he was the third of nine children. But you know, one of the most infamous stories of, you know, he, he was very smart, right? So he managed to go to Oxford. He got a scholarship to Oxford University to write. And then um, he was accused, or st as the story goes, he tried to burn down the university. And then, you know, they said, succumb to psychiatric help or be expelled. And he accused them of trying to control him. And he resigned and he, he left the school and he was a squatter, was, you know, on the streets of London. So that's sort of colourful character. And then when he won, you were... Yeah. Yeah, I, I was reading about yeah. him and he... 
he got the Guardian Fiction Award. Yes, first book award yeah. for House of Hunger. And he uh, apparently just went out on the stage to get the award and started hurling plates <laughs> at the audience. At the, the audience. <laughs> apparently he was very drunk. And the audience apparently yeah. started clapping as the story goes. Wow. Um, you know, I guess genius. Um, which reminded me of Zacchaeus in your book, which is like, uh, gets, gets the praise from the critics for being this amazing, like writing so truthfully about Africa. Yes. And then he writes angrily back at the critics to say, you don't get my work. Yes, there's they, nothing to clap Stop clapping. Why are you clapping? And then, and then they <laughs> praise him again even yeah. more, so, which I can imagine must be the most frustrating <laughs> experience. Um, yes. So would you like to read a bit of yes. um, The House of Hunger? Yes. My head hurt with the sudden glare of white light. The floor was painted charcoal black, but the walls were spotless white. In the far corner, an effigy of Fionn Smith dangled by the neck from a large butcher's spike. She caught me smiling. You want to forget? She asked. I could not place her dialect, but I understood her. I was sure now. No, I said firmly. Good. The lights went out. That night, all the lights I had known flashed through my mind. The pain was the sound of slivers of glass being methodically crushed in a steel vice by a fiend whose face was very like that of my old carpentry master, who is now in a madhouse. The skin lightened dancer. She was burning, burning the madness out of me. The room had taken over my mind. My hunger had become the room. There was a thick darkness where I was going. It was a prison. It was the womb. It was blood clinging closely like a swamp in the grass-matted lowlands of my life. It was a white's-only sign on a lavatory. It was my teeth on edge, the bitter acid of it. It was the effigy swinging gently to and fro in the night of my mind. And the pain of it flared into flame flickering like a match for a moment it lit up the room making the shadows of the naked dancer and me leap quickly across the ceiling and fuse into an embrace leaping like ecstasy grown sad a violence slowly translating into gentleness but the match died out and history was the blackened twig of it the fine grains of that burnt-out insurrection were the stories of those black heroes among whom my story was merely one more skin-lightening pain is the pain of the mind greater than that of the body? Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, so throughout, you get, it's like an assault, right? An assault, a linguistic assault on the senses, very violent assault on the language level. Reading um, Dambutsu, I like, was constantly sort of taken aback by the, you just throw these shocking images. Mm. And it's almost like you're, you're dreaming or, um, mm. and these images are just flashing, flashing mm. into your consciousness and you... Mm. Um, it's very surreal, right? He's yeah. also... Um, Sometimes that's, I think at some point towards the end of the novella, it's sometimes it's imagistic without making much sense. So it's very, um, but it's what you feel, what I felt reading, it was the violence, right? That constant flash of violence. Um. And your novel doesn't shy away from violence either. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some scenes which are quite visceral and mm -hmm. quite gory. And um, how was, how was, how did it feel to write those, those things? You know, um, so I think, so reading things like House of Hunger, um, the Stone Virgins, but House of Hunger especially, it's, it's sort of that, um, I guess, the courage to look. So I said we have a, we have a sort of a culture of look. It's polite to look away, right? We as Zimbabweans were peaceful. You know, that's our mantra. Peace-loving people, this is not who we are. But somehow things keep happening. So, um, so for me, the, the idea of looking and staying with brutality um, and having those images necessary was also a way to, it's a way to shock the senses, right? It's, it's, it shocks, I think, it shocks Zamani, it, sh it shocks the reader, it's, it's a shock for whoever this is happening to. 
and um, you can think of it as shock treatment for a psyche, you know, to our sort of national psyche that likes to forget or pretend like these things are not there. They're too horrible for them to have been done by us, so let's pretend that they're, they're not there. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I think my last, probably my last question is, um, uh, yeah, what role does what role does love play in the in the novel? Oh, it's a beautiful question. I because I you know whenever I hear it's like it's a gruesome, I'm like yeah, but there's love. There's <laughs> well, um, if you think of it, for so for the first thing when Zamani asks Abednego about his past, the first thing he remembers. This is the you know the first love of his life, Tandy, and we go through that period of romance, and um, and uh, you can think of my Agnes, right, as, as also someone searching for love, right? She searches for it in the most interesting places, you know. Um, I will not give anything away, but it is a search for love and acceptance. You can think of Zamani as a character is also searching for love and belonging and acceptance. Um, you know he, this obsession with fathers and that he has with the idea of fathers and what what would what lens would you go to right to know your father or to be accepted by your father um, it's also love of country um, but I think what's very interesting with the various different sorts of love there's also spiritual love if you can think of that sort of transcendence and religion as a sort of embalming even you know corrupting at times corrupting force at times embalming force. Um, but I think if you think of love is inextricably tied with violence in the novel because I think it is the same in life. Um, we always like to think of power, right, as something that negates. Um, but I think one of the things that I'm very interested in also with love, power, violence is power also creates, right? It takes away, but there's something that's created out of that. Um, and if you think of our liberation struggle, it was love, a love of country, love of self, trying to claim that, but it was also quite bloody and violent, right? Um, so it's for me, it's, it's that also, uh, love is not only a peaceful thing, but is active, vigorous thing, not always um, unquestionable, right? And given to questionable, difficult acts, um, regrettable acts, but what does that mean? And how do you deal with that? And what does it mean to move forward in love? Yeah, one of the quotations that struck me was, um, I, I'm going to misquote you, but it's uh, the, the pitter-patter of romance was colonised by the practicalities of love. Which You've actually just quoted it properly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. yes. I didn't practice. <laughs> um, which, um, which I think also in the first passage that you read, um, that was something that came to my mind was, there's these sort of images of politics mm -hmm. and um, the col the colonizers like Rhodes is quote is like cited and mm -hmm. that sort of like these wider grandiose political ideas mm -hmm. and b being um, contrasted at the same time with something as like simple mm -hmm. as the pitter patter of romance <laughs> um, and there was something very moving about that um, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> not really a question, but <laughs> no, no. It's, so yeah, it's very interesting. So the idea of love and politics. Uh, I was watching uh, my Richard documentary that if you Google Dumbledore Richard House of Hunger, it's there. And it was talking about how during colonization, right, um, relation human relations were not governed by who was there or who was not there, but by the laws. So it's very interesting that way. Love can also become a political thing, right? Think of Farmer Thornton and his love for. Um, you know, cocoa-coloured hips, I am quoting the novel. 
became a very political sort of affair at the time. So it's that very interesting thing how in such a situation, even in post in Zimbabwe, certain things become political. Right? Love, memory, you know, becomes, can become very political. Religion, right, can become a very political thing. That was Femi in discussion with the writer Navuyo Rosa Schumer. Tune in next month where we'll have another wonderful writer chatting about their book, Loves. To finish, we've got one more reading from House of Stone before we go. Enjoy. So Mama Agnes receives a call from her brother Trimo, right, from the village Kezi, and they found remains in the Antelope Mine. This is in 1997. So Mama Agnes takes a bus and she goes there to see if her brother's remains um, among the bodies that have been found. She told him, hadn't she, to rein in his excitement, not to let it run so free so fast, because she'd known, even as she begged leave from her teaching duties and boarded the shoeshine bus to Antelope Mine, that they'd do something like that, those people from the government, murder hope with a few words pinned on a flimsy piece of paper. They were already in full swing by the time she arrived at Antelope Mine, the government people, looking solemn as they stood in front of the cameras, frying in the Madobo sun. They proclaimed the remains to be from the liberation era of the 70s. Brave men and women who fought heroically for the freedom that every Zimbabwean now enjoyed, they piped. They mopped their brows and showed their teeth to the cameras. Behind them stood withered May stalks. Mama Agnes squinted at the crowd and tried to pick out Trimore among the clusters of frazzled villages. Children took turns to run into the sight of the cameras, pull down their underpants and wiggle their bottoms. She didn't see Trimore until later, after the, after the scuffle, which started when she, realizing that the day was oranging and the craniums, mandibles, clavicles, scapulae, sternums, humeri, ribs, iliums, sacrums, pubises, radii, ulnas, carpals, metacarpals, phalanges, ischiums, femurs, petalae, tibias, fibulae, tarsals, and metatarsals of her brothers were not going to be retrieved, shouted, that's where you threw them. Before long, the crowd was chanting, that's where you threw them, that's where you threw them, accusatory fingers aimed like pistols at interlope mine, their fragile voices growing louder, carried on the wings of the wind, flapping in the faces of the government people. But when a truckload of soldiers arrived, Mama Agnes turned and ran, hitching her dress up her thighs, just like she had when the men in the red berets had come to Kezi. All around her, the villagers scattered like dissidents. They ran. Even the old people, whose flesh swayed like heavy buckets and weighed them down as though they were carrying the burden of a whole nation. Thank you.